Hello, and welcome to Fortune's Wheelhouse, a podcast about esoterics and the tarot. I'm Susie Chang, and my co-host is Mel Moline. We're going on a journey through the symbolic imagery of each of the 78 tarot cards. If you use a Rider-Waite-Smith deck, or a Thoth deck, or Mel's own Tabula Mundi deck, you've come to the right place. We love making this podcast, and we hope you love listening to it. But you should also know that Fortune's Wheelhouse is more than the sound of our voices. We have a home on the web at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. Come and visit us there so you can experience the other part of this conversation, where we provide hundreds of written articles and explanations for even the most obscure concepts you'll hear on the show. If you sign up to be our patron at even the $1 level, you'll instantly gain access to all that information. As you know, each week we have a giveaway. The winner of last week's giveaway is Austin from Montana. Congratulations, Austin. With this week's episode, we have arrived at our final suit, the suit of pentacles or discs. And as always, we begin with the ace. So it is an ending, but also a beginning. Another thing that has officially begun this week is my online tarot course, The Living Tarot. Already 40 brilliant readers with every range of experience from the newbie to the veteran are working their way through the course, building their own correspondences, reading their own lives into the cards. It's exciting. It's fun. It's great. It's also self-directed and offered on Google Classroom, so anyone can join from anywhere in the world at any time they like. This week, I'm offering one free spot in the class, a $150 value to one lucky winner. Like the Ace of Pentacles, it is a shining opportunity, but you must reach out to grab it. I hope you win. But even if you don't, you're just as welcome to take the class anytime you like. You can sign up as a patron and find out more about the drawing at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. If you're on Facebook, you can also connect with other listeners at Fortune's Wheelhouse Academy. That's the officially unofficial Fortune's Wheelhouse group, where even now some 275 listeners are sharing their love of esoteric tarot. You too could be one of them. Remember, you can always check in with me and Mel at our individual websites. I'm at www.tsusanchang.com. That's T as in tarot, susanchang.com. And my Etsy shop is at www.etsy.com slash shop slash tarotista. Mel's blog is at www.tabulamundi.com. And you can order her products at tarocart.com. And we each have newsletters where you can sign up to hear about anything new that's happening in our worlds. Finally, if you have a moment and you haven't done it yet, would you please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes? You can do it that way, too. It's free, it's easy to do, and it really does help spread the word. Thanks for doing that and helping us out. And now, here's this week's episode.
Welcome to the Ace of Pentacles or Discs. Actually, somebody on the group wanted me to say the Ace of Discicles. <laughs> We're beginning the final suit, which you may call pentacles, or you may call discs, or you may call coins, uh, depending on what tradition you come out of. For all intents and purposes, they're the same. Although I do think that, you know, each of those names kind of emphasizes a slightly different aspect, you know, coins, yeah, I, you know, I agree. coins, obviously coins, money. Yeah. Coins, merchants, money. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty obvious. But discs, I think, you know, maybe emphasizes the connection to the world, you know, the shape of the world. Yeah. And also to the sun and to the planets and the whirling, you know, the whirling forces of life rather yeah. than uh, the more uh, pentacles seems more static than discs. Discs seem to imply like a sphere or a, you know, a moving body almost. I see what you mean, because discs tend to spin. Yeah. Right? And pentacles, yeah, more static. And also, I think it's intended to have more of a reference to the esoteric magical meanings, you yep. know, spirit over matter type thing. Uh, yep. Almost a talismanic kind of feeling. Agreed. Yeah. But for all intents and purposes, we treat them as the same in tarot. And for the purposes of this suit, there will probably be more of me saying pentacles and more of Mel saying discs, just because that's what we're used to. Uh, so hopefully that will make sense to everyone. All right. So here we are. Ace of pentacles or discs, the root of the powers of the earth. That, of course, is a similar title to what we had for all of the other aces. The only thing that changes is the element. Yeah. And we might want to talk a little bit about the element earth because it's sort of unique. It is. It's special. In yeah. the series. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that like, we're going to be talking so much in this suit about how earth and pentacles are set apart in a way in so many different ways. Yeah. It's, it's both the end and the beginning, I guess you could say about earth. You yeah. Know what I mean, it's the seed and the fruit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's uh, incarnation and where all life begins, but yet it's the culmination of all the previous suits that have come before. There's, there's something self-contained about earth as well. You know, Kabbalistically, we associate earth with Malkut and it only gets one, you know, unlike all of the other elements each get three it's just different that way. I think there's a implication that it's a finished product in a way, that it's separate from the process, the ongoing process of creation in a way. And at the same time, it's totally coterminous with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's a really hard thing to explain. Yeah. You can kind of cognate it with Malkut itself, yeah. the material world, the physical world. And yeah. then there's the connection, which is especially apparent in this card since it's the ace that connection between spirit and matter and keter and malkut yes exactly because we are nothing without the animating force of everything that came before on the other hand everything that came before has no way to manifest except through us yeah i was looking at crowley's kind of naples arrangement description where he describes in really simple terms Keter as the spiritual essence and then the next to Sephiro as the creative and transmissive 
powers, you know, intelligence and virility, creation mm-hmm. and transmission. And then the four through nine is being the mental and moral qualities of the personality with special emphasis on the six or Tiferet as the elaboration of Keter in the material world. Mm-hmm. And then the material world itself, Malkut, as the physical vehicle that contains all the previous one through nine, and it's the container for it. Right. This is the, um, these are our bodies. And, and everything in the world is actually made of the substance of spirit. We are all stardust. And also, you know, I think another way to think of the pentacles, the five point star is, you know, it's everything we take in through our five senses as well, very much yep. locating us in the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and feels of this earth. The other thing I liked that was in the essay on the Naples arrangement, it described the 10 as itself fulfilled by its complement. And that kind of struck me just because we're probably going to be talking a little bit about the fool and the fool's journey because this is an ace and and the ace and the fool have some correspondence, but we're also going to be talking about the universe. Absolutely. Because it's it's the suit of earth and that's the um trump that corresponds to earth. So that there's that whole you know itself and it's fulfilled by its complement which is kind of the story between the fool and the universe. Absolutely. In fact, now's a kind of a good time to talk about that, I think, because I was thinking back to the way we kind of told the story of each element through its associated, you know, major. So we told the story of air through the fool. And then, well, we didn't get around to it, but we can at some point, (laughs) the story of judgment, you know, the story of the wands through the eon or judgment card, and then the story of the cup suit through the hanged man card. And so in a way, you can tell the whole story of the disc suit through the universe card. So in the universe card or world card, you know, you can think of those three associated, the three elemental zodiacal majors as the devil, the hierophant, and the hermit. And I was thinking that that story, if there's an overarching story to the world, that's a big hypothesis. It's, uh, it, I think it would be the search to reconnect with the divine, with the holy guardian angel, if you like, or whatever it is. But if you look at that story of, uh, you know, the devil going to the hierophant, going to the hermit, what you have is like us being chained to matter in the devil. You know, that feeling of what you see is what you get. Everything is bound by matter over spirit. And then you go yeah, towards... Yeah, I think Crowley even mentioned mm-hmm. something um, about the connection between the fool and the devil. He ah. mentioned specifically the um, the way Aleph and Ayan are both kind of equivalent as vowels, in a sense. And yeah. that there's something about that spirit and matter that connects the two. Yes, that makes sense to me, a lot of sense. And then, you know, and then the hierophant, you're, you're like creating structures to try and bridge the gap. So it's got the structural qualities of Capricorn, but the, you know, the, the striving towards spirit and heaven that you have in the hermit. So, you know, the hierophant being literally the pontifex bridge maker, that's where we try and bridge that difference between the mortal and the divine. And then, in, of course, and in the hermit. it's also interesting, the hermit's letter being Yod. Yes, 
the seed. Because again, yeah, that hand. brings in that idea of spirit and, and the beginnings. We've got a lot of beginnings and endings here, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and that sort of quest of the hermit to try and transcend, uh, to go beyond, to leave behind the material world that we started with, you know, with the devil to find connection with spirit again. You know, I think that that kind of is the, the sort of the destination of that story. And if you look at the devil card, most devil cards have, you know, a strong five element, you know, in one way or another, yep. matter over spirit. And then most hermit cards have a strong six element, you know, in the lantern, the six point star. So you're right. going from that matter over spirit five to the as above, so below heaven and earth six. And that six is also really relevant in terms of the ace because there's that solar component that we're going to that we're yeah. going to see. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think also, you know, when we talk about the connection of the princess of discs, you know, who is so, you know, this is her throne we're talking about. That is her quest to unite with her beloved, you know, from 5 to 6. Yeah, so. and the whole princess in general, you know, calls to mind that another important message of this card is the whole st- story of the you know tetragrammaton yeah the the fool as the legendary wanderer who wins the king's daughter and you know the Mm -hmm. and becomes the king where where the princess becomes the queen and that whole that whole fairy tale is all bound up in the meaning that whole fairy tale absolutely with the fool as you know the youngest son or the or the foolish wanderer wanderer. yeah exactly and you know what i'm thinking about like to compare the universe and the princess or page of discs you can you know that's that's really interesting because i was thinking of them as sort of sleeping beauty figures right and uh and how we think we often talk about the page or princess of discs as um as being asleep you know and Mm -hmm having to be woken up by her prince. And I was thinking about if you think about the world card, you know, it's almost as though that's the world she's dreaming in, you know, enclosed in the egg of blue or what, you know, or in the wreath or whatever it is. It's her internal perfection. Whereas from the outside, we see the sleeping princess. I I like that because there's also something in this ace about themes of awakening. And the other interesting thing in terms of the universe card is you can look at it as the complete fulfillment of the great work, the end. And you can also look at it as the beginning starting down here in Malkut and moving up the tree, you know? So it goes both ways. When we talk about the ACE itself, we're talking, I think we talked last time when we talked about the princess of swords about how, you know, the area that the princess rules has a central portion that is the throne, the throne of the ace. So in this case, if the princess rules uh, that sort of North Pole to 45 degrees North latitude within the quadrant of Aries, Taurus, Gemini, then the throne of the ace extends from 22 degrees 30 of Aries to 7 degrees 30 of Gemini. Uh, that quadrant is centered over Europe and Africa. Which roughly. makes sense in terms of this card. I always see this card as a, a symbol of incarnation itself. Right. And, you know, that's the cradle of civilization. Exactly. That's where we began one way or another, no matter where you, you know, started how, or how far you go back. That's where we began and where we spread out from. 
we contrasted that last time with the zone of the swords, which was the new world, you know, America, basically. And uh, so what we're talking about is what the so-called old world here. I believe that, you know, theoretically, the aces are said to revolve at the North Pole. Do we talk about aces in terms of time? I guess we do to some degree. Um, if the princesses we talk about in terms of space. That's the case. This yeah. one would be the in, in the Northern Hemisphere, the spring. Right. March 21st, the, uh, the equinox to the summer solstice. In the direction of east, mm -hmm. I guess. East? I would say north for well, Earth. Well, yeah. you know, spring and east are oh, often I see. Yes, conflated with each other in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because of the uh, yeah, Aries point. Yeah. Right. And the right, whole right. rising sun metaphor. Mm -hmm. On the yeah, this this is a really interesting thing. Order of elements and how difficult it is to kind of rectify them, since you have uh, you know the fire, water, air, earth that we talk about in the tree all the time. Yeah, you know. Yep. But then you know when we do a lesser banishing ritual, we're going air, fire, water, earth, right? Yeah, that's always kind of. I have had to wrap my head around that a few times. I've gotten, <laughs> yeah. I've gotten comfortable with it. I basically say, okay, well, the Golden Dawn didn't think it was a problem. I guess I don't either. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yep. but so in terms of, um, the season, I guess there's a way of thinking of this as the, as spring. It's also, there's also a way of thinking of it as fall. And for that and there, reason, and you can also think of it as winter because discs. exactly discs is winter. <laughs> it's everything. It's everything, and, and it's summer because of the solar component. Right, right. As far as the winter thing goes, I think probably that's what I use more than anything, simply because I associate discs, you know, with Earth and Earth with cold and dry, and cold, cold and dry and cold with and North and winter. I guess what we do is we just know what we're doing in the context that we're doing it and make our peace exactly. with it. <laughs> it's very flexible. It is quite flexible. It's it's so easy to get upset and bound up in the uh in the theory behind magic, but ultimately when we're doing any kind of magical operation, it's up to us to commit, you know, and to um and to believe and to focus our intent. And you can't do that when you're caught up in the snarls of the theory. <laughs> right. So you have to set it aside when the work begins. <laughs> yes, and go on faith. Exactly. All right. So one thing I was thinking we could do now before we proceed to whatever's next, probably Kabbalah, is talk a little bit more about those connections to other cards, like to the 10, to the princess, to the aces, other aces. And we've talked a little bit about the connection with the princess, princess or page. Uh, this is, this is her throne. This is going to be the throne of the, of the rose of the palace earth. Um, and we'll see that imagery reflected in the cards. Uh, this is in a sense her home, but also where she derives her power from. Yes. So and I suppose that would be a good time to mention that power as the power to keep silent. Right. Which is, again, uh, the power that is different <laughs> from the others. <laughs> so we had to will, 
with the wands suit, to dare with the cup suit, to know with the sword suit, and to keep silent. Ultimately, to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like will, love, reason, action. Right, right. Or cabalistically, uh, well, two, three, six, ten. Yeah. And also, okay, the archetypal world, the creative world, the formative world. Yes. And the material, um, world. material world. Thank you. <laughs> and also, so it's interesting, therefore, to also think of the ace in connection with the 10, because the 10 is something that we're going to be talking about when we get there as this very, you know, heavy, physical end product of the ace. Um, but, you know, it is the destination of the ace as well. And it's, it's like, and it's like the cosmic restart button right. in this kind of <laughs> process <laughs> that we've been talking about all along. Right. I mean, if you think of any process of growth, the ace card is where you plant the seed and the 10 is the fully finished and ripe and fruiting, you know, and dropping seeds final product, whether it's a tree or a flower or a person giving birth or dying, you know, it's sort of like the the ace of pentacles is the germination of something that is going to eventually be able to germinate new life on its own. Yeah, the importance too in the 10 of using what you've accumulated. To go to the next thing, even more so really than we see in right, the other tens. Right, to have tens. it be a, a platform for growth rather than a stagnant endpoint. Right. And I think that that's why, you know, we we see in all Ten of Discs cards the implication that there's another world to come. It may be encoded or symbolized in various ways, but it is very much the end and the beginning. Okay. Um, and finally, you know, just talking about the other aces, you know, and the way that, that this ace differs from those is kind of interesting, you know, uh, in the sense that representationally, it's always rendered as being somehow flatter or more, more solid than the others. Uh, like for example, in the Marseille, um, in the Marseille aces, they're all completely, you know, wands, cups, ace of wands, ace of cups, ace of swords are rendered three-dimensionally, but the coin, the disc, is just itself. It's just sitting there, right? It looks completely like a uh, two-dimensional drawing. Earth. The flat <laughs> earth, exactly. It's just a circle. And, uh, and you know, and in Rider Waite, you know, thinking about this, you've got something yod-like on every other ace, right? You've got leaves coming off the wands, you've got yods dripping off the cups and swords. But Ace of Pentacles don't have that, you know? Mm. It's sort of like, this is what all of those impulses, you know, all of that divine grace that was raining down was meant to create. It's in there. <laughs> it's in the pentacle. It's it's not. This is really abstract, but I can see a, a, a very subtle allusion to Yod there in the five-pointed star. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's the now. Hand, yeah. The five-fingered hand, you know. No, pretty, it, pretty and subtle. absolutely. And I think that that's it, though. It's now hidden. It's like embedded and it's hidden inside the thing itself rather than, you know, radiating off of it. And that's 
cool. That's something that just occurred to me too. The the idea, you know, how I said the five fingered hand as being the um the five pointed star in this card, but mm-hmm. every ace in the Rider Waite has a hand in it, which sure makes does. sense as you know, Yod as the uh, first letter of the divine name, you know, as yeah, equating to the ace. Yeah, yeah, hadn't thought of that quite that way. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Or maybe I have, and I just forgot till now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even before all the esoteric baggage got attached to tarot, the Ace of Pentacles, or rather Ace of Coins in Marseille, was the place, one of the places where the maker would put their signature, that and the two. So, you know, this is the maker's mark card, <laughs> the stamp yep. of creation. We'll see that sort of rendered very specifically in Crowley, the mark of the maker. But I think it's curious that Ace of Coins was always special, even before anyone tried to match it up cabalistically to the final creation. Yeah, that is interesting. I don't know how that began, but go figure. So Kabbalah, um, we talked, a, we referenced a little bit the story of the daughter. Uh, this is Hey Final. So uh, we had in the suit of wands, Yod, uh, in the suit of cups, Hey Primal, in the suit of swords, Vav, and here we are in the suit of discs or pentacles with hay final. And because we have the two hays, and, the daughter and is... And because it's an ace, we also have... You could call this card Keter of Malkut in a way, you, you know? could. You could. It's oh. Keter in Asiya and Keter in Malkut, or Malkut and Keter. That's what's so confusing about this card, or so so intimidating. It's just, it's connected. It's what's so beautiful about it, <laughs> yeah. but so hard to express. It reminds me, the story of the daughter, you know, in the hay final and the sort of enclosure of the beginning and the end, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, when you have a daughter, when you're pregnant with a daughter, the daughter's inside you, and then the, every egg the daughter will ever bear is inside her. <laughs> you know, right. so it's like, it's, it's like nesting dolls, Russian nesting dolls of, you know, daughters and mothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Keter in Asiya, so Asiya is the what we consider the material world, it's coterminous with Malkut. Uh, so, you know, when we when we talk about Atzilut, we're talking about the three supernals, uh, Keter, Chokmah, and Binah. When we're talking about the world of Briah, we're talking about uh, Chesed, Gevura, and Tiferet. And when we're talking about Yetzira, we're talking about uh, Netzach, Hod, and Yesod. But when we're talking about Asiya, we're talking about the dingleberry. Right. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, we're talking about that last pendulum from the bottom of the tree, just Malkut and Asiya being being the same and, you know, both world and Sephira at the same time. Earth and this world is often considered to be somehow less than, mm-hmm. but I've always thought it to in some ways be the greatest. Yeah, because this is where everything is mixed and blended and comes together. It's simultaneously the furthest away and yet the closest to the highest world, if you want to call it that. Right. Because the, you know, the spirit is indwelling in the body. You know, and also I was thinking about this in, in magical terms and the way that Asiya and Malkut are 
you know, perceptually cut off from the others, and how we rise into Yetzira, we rise into Yesod, you know, yet into the world of Yetzira, mm-hmm. into the into the sphere of Yesod, the astral plane, to do magical work, you know, and then it manifests here in Malkut. We can't really see that connection. It looks like coincidence. It looks like odd probability. You know, it. We don't get to see that causal connection because the link is silent, right? You know, it's we're we're yes. we're enclosed in silence. <laughs> yeah, that creative process is kind of something that happens in silence. And we talked a little bit about maybe the Princess of Swords, the Page of Swords, is the one responsible for that, but we will not know what she does. <laughs> All right. There's also the connection, you know, when we're talking about Kabbalah and this being really associated with both Keter and Malkut, we have to consider the two Sephiroth in between Isod mm-hmm. and Tiferet as being, you know, really important parts of the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You and know, you see we, it in this card. You, you see you see symbols of both of those things. That's another fourfold expression that we don't talk about as much, but which is just as powerful. The idea that, you know, that Keter, Tiferet, Yesod, Malkut is its own progression through the elements, mm-hmm. through the worlds, uh, through the four, through the holy yep. name. This also reminds me, so I'm, I know, I'm sure I talked to you about this dream I had that was this summer that was so affecting to me because I I basically woke up with this phrase in my head that I was trying to parse and I just barely caught it before it vanished and I wrote it down. And the phrase was, within results are differences, Uh, differences are offerings, and offerings are results. And I interpreted that to mean that within results, within the world of Malkut, within a reading, when you draw your cards, there are differences, differences of interpretation, differences of meaning, differences in how that card might manifest. Differences are offerings is the act of the interpreter to say, this is the meaning I take from it. This is the crystallization of this card that I choose. And then Mm -hmm. to say offerings are results is to send that intention into, you know, the world beyond the material so that that becomes your new reality. So, you know, it was a sort of cyclical statement of results turning into differences, turning into offerings, turning into results, which to me kind of encapsulates that shuttle between uh, Yetzira and Asiya, between Malkut and Yesod, between the discs and everything else. It kind of reminds me, too, the whole idea of results and differences of the idea that creation, whenever something's created, its opposite is created as well. Yeah. And they almost cancel each other out. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I often think that one of the things to consider when you're reading any tarot card is not that, you know, the card represents one thing, but it represents the whole sphere of issues around one things from its extreme positive to its extreme negative, And that, you know, you as the interpreter maneuver within that spectrum. Yes. And that's easy to forget, especially, you know, in Wade Smith, where, where the Ten of Swords just punches you in the face. <laughs> right, right. It gets easier with practice, though. It does. It does. You, It's almost like you see through the card at a certain point, you know? Yeah, you start seeing it as flexible as language itself. How exactly. one word can mean many different things. Yeah. 
including its opposite very often. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, I have some historical and cardomantic sort of fun references just to break us out of our Kabbalah heads and the profundities yeah. of life for a minute. <laughs> I guess Itea really represented this card as certainly a very positive one, contentment, felicity, happiness, enchantment, which is interesting given the magical sort of connections, satisfaction, the perfect medicine, the solar medicine, which is interesting. I don't know quite where he came with that, but it certainly seems apt. And then reversed, wealth, riches, treasure, opulence. So all of that seems to make a great deal of sense with this card. Cardomantically, Atea and Waite both associated the Ace of Pentacles with the Ace of Clubs, not the Ace of Diamonds. That There's actually some good reference for that, some good reasons for that, but Boy, I can see it either way, honestly. You really can. You really can. Uh, but again, there's that connection. I mean, what's the alternative for clubs wands? So again, right. we're <laughs> beginning and end territory kind of being overlapping. I like the meanings that have been sort of historically associated with the Ace of Diamonds in terms of how well they line up with Ace of Pentacles or Discs because, you know, success, cash, <laughs> long-term right. connections. So there's that sort of luckiness and sense of fortune that connects to it. Uh, it's also, the Ace of Diamonds is funny. It's called the pig's eye. <laughs> and if you think about a pig's eye, right? You yeah. know, it's sort of diamond shape. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, isn't that strange? Let you think see. they would have called it the sow's ear. <laughs> <laughs> Remember we talked about how the ace of hearts and the ace of spades, way back when we did those, they were terms used by asexuals to describe themselves. So if you're an ace of hearts, you're a person who, while not sexually attracted to anyone, falls in love, whereas an ace of spades does not. The Ace of Diamonds is what's known as a demi-romantic, which is someone who will is capable of falling in love, but only after forming an emotional friendship connection. And to me, you know, there's there's something really. I, I'm just going to throw this out here now because I know we're going to connect to it again later. There's something about this card that has to do with time itself fate mm -hmm. and time itself. And uh, that makes sense with the connection yeah. to the universe card, which exactly Saturn has the dual meeting of Saturn and Earth. You know, the, the Ace of Pentacles itself looks looks like an, uh, a coded clock face, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the universe has called the Great One of the Night of Time. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely something. And, you know, people often use pentacles to indicate the longest period of time. If they use tarot for timing. Yeah, years as opposed to weeks or months or days or hours. Right, you're going to be waiting a while. <laughs> right, yeah. Which years kind of makes sense, again, when you think about this card as both sun and earth and mm -hmm. the relationship between them. Yeah. You know, the, so yeah. the solar journey being a year long. That does make sense. And, you know, when you think about the connection to the 10 of pentacles and how in Rider Waite, at least, you have an entire family generations represented age, in yeah. that card. Yeah. Yeah. And the Deccan associated with that having to do with, you know, death and encasement and returning to the earth. All right. Shall we start to go 
card by card? Well, Well, we're going to have to do it sooner or later. (laughs) We'll be here all day. So in terms of, okay, Rider-Waite-Smith, Ace of Pentacles, the, uh, the, the pentacle thing, I tried to do a little bit of digging into the history to see who came up with changing it to a pentacle and calling it a pentacle rather than just a coin or a disc or whatever. Uh, according to Paul Hewson, there's a, a cultist named Paul Christian uh, in 1870, who in History of Magic referred to coins as pentacles. And, you know, and this is a kind of a fundamental shift from thinking of this round thing as being a four type thing to thinking it of being a five type thing. All of the ace of coins in Marseille decks always have this four petaled um, flower yeah, at the center. Yeah, which kind of almost looks like the circled cross symbol of Malkut. It does. It really does. And, you know, what's really even weirder, given that there was like no Kabbalah influence then, the uh, sun sort of shape around it has 32 points. So... Go oh, figure. well, that's like the, the directions, <laughs> all the directions of the compass. Yeah, like yeah. The earth and the, yeah, the earth and the sun and interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So this reference to to pentacles then uh, occurs again in Eliphaz Levi, where he calls it uh, a, a pentacle. Uh, the switch to five becomes sort of significant because it... You know, in a Christian context, it could be the five wands of Christ. In an elemental context, you know, spirit above matter. He shows a representation of it, Levy does, in his Wheel of Fortune, which has at the center of it a pentacle or pentacle of Ezekiel, which um, Waite later co-opted for his own Wheel of Fortune. So, you know, if you think, if you get a sort of, uh, subconscious hit from the Ace of Pentacles like I did, where it feels like the Wheel of Fortune. That's why. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but a pentacle is interesting. You know, it's, it's, it is an old word and it tends to mean like talisman, really not amulet. Talisman being something that attracts something, amulet being something that shields from it. So the, the conceptual shift to putting a pentacle on the card has to do with you know, referencing its magical beyond the physical world properties. Well, that's really interesting in terms of some of the um, symbols or weapons of Malku are the magic circle and the triangle of art or evocation. Yeah. Yeah. The magic circle and the triangle. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The circle and the triangle, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And the circle itself has that quality of saying, okay, this is my world, both in the sense that this represents the small right, like circle. A membrane. Right, represents my larger world, but also everything within here is under my control. Really interesting. So that's what we're seeing when we see this big glowing mysterious pentacle in the middle of the ace of pentacles in a gray sky, you know, and all the aces have this gray sky, but there's something about this one that I think looks even more magical. I mean, to me, just because there's nothing in there, there's no yodes, there's no, you know, stuff just falling out of the sky. It's just sort of a flat canvas on which you paint your will, you know. Mm. And then, of course, you have the very interesting scene below it. Uh, yeah, a ton going on in there. The first yeah, thing I, what I immediately yeah, go ahead. went yeah. to is the 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 gate mm-hmm. symbolism as you know, gate of Malkut, gate exactly. being one of the titles of Malkut, and then the mountain that you're 
leading towards is another Malkut symbol, but if you look at it, it almost, again, looks like a circle and a triangle, you know? It does. That, it does, That kind yeah. of round gate around the triangle of the mountain. You know, and what's really funny is that I pulled out all of the ace cards to see what's going on with mountains. You have them, uh, you have sort of hill formations in all of them, you know, hill or mountain, the Ace of Wands, you've got a, a, a mountain with a castle on it, and then sort of a hill in the Ace of Cups, a mountain in the Swords Ace, and uh, and then very similar mountains to the Swords in the Pentacles Yeah, it's, it's probably just part of the message, you know, that the progression from Keter to Malkut. Yeah, and you know, and it's almost like if you're looking through that Malkut gateway in there and seeing those mountains, it's almost like you're looking through into Yetzirah, into the world of swords, because those are the same mountains, you know? Mm. And, uh, and whereas in the Ace of Wands, there's this sort of outline, this ghostly, creepy, haunted outline of a castle in the Ace of Wands. And that is like, okay, we're looking down at Malkut far, far away, mm. you know? So Through the mist. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting if you think of those as like the Ace of Wands having a, a window to the very, very distant uh Ace of Pentacles and the Ace of Pentacles looking up through the doorways at the Ace of Swords. In the Ace of Wands, that castle symbolism as, you know, looking towards the kingdom, whereas yeah. here you're in the kingdom. Yeah, look, trying to look back up. And yeah. you're, looking, you're looking back up at the mountain. It's really fascinating. Besides the fact that, you know, mountains are just uh, connotative of Earth generally. And then the mountain as being perhaps a hint of the hermit, you know, who's always yeah. seen either ascending or descending a mountain and the hermit as being Yod, which is associated with Keter. Right. The tip of the Yod. Right. And the thing about mountains is, is, they, is that they always point upward, <laughs> you know, yep. into the sky. You know, they can represent arduous journeys and obstacles and things like that, but they also represent aspiration and striving and you know, journeys that we take. So, and I, then there's the, um, three flowered white lilies or what the flowers in the foreground are. Mm hmm. Right. Which, you know, white is Keter and three is the supernals. I suppose it could be something like that. Well, there's roses and there's lilies. And this is really mm. interesting because, like, apparently in Rider Waite Smith, I was looking this up in, um, the Amberstones book. There are situations in the deck where there are roses and no lilies, but there are never lilies and no roses. <laughs> you can think of those two as passion and purity or male and female or whatever two you want. I was doing some looking into this yesterday, and I was looking at the reference in the Song of Solomon. Mm. The first two lines of the second chapter uh, go... Uh, like this. It goes, I'll, I'll read it in Hebrew first. It's very short. Ani chavatzalet hasharon shoshanat ha-amakim. And that means I am the rose of Sharon and the wild lily of the valleys. So Sharon was, it's not a person. It's, you know, an area. It's a geographical area that was apparently posed over an earthquake zone. So, you know, there's this sort of like, this this beautiful flower that grows in a dangerous place. And there's sometimes it's translated as the rose of the deep. 
So, mm. you know, the rose and the lily grow in this buried place, you know, and the Song of Songs in saying this line, I am the rose of Sharon and the and the wild lily of the valley says, you know, here I am down below. And yet I am the beloved, you know, mm. I am, <laughs> I am the one yeah. that it's all for. <laughs> the lowest and the highest. Exactly. And that's something that I get out of this card when I look at it, you know, I think this creation is, you know, so earthbound, so rooted, and yet it's the point of it all. Yeah. And also the path, you know, going into the doorway. I think symbolically paths tell us that there is a way to get from point A to point B. And there's no path on any of the other aces, you know. But the, the, the path towards the door, towards the mountain, I and think. Paths are often just symbols of journeys and even the, the life process. It's spooky to me almost like, because sort of like it's spooky on your, uh, Eon card in Tabula Mundi, you know, it's like, oh my God, you're there. <laughs> There's you, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the path is like, well, it's almost like breaking the fourth wall. I've got a, you know? I've got a path in my devil card too that kind of creeps <laughs> me out sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of like that. I think is like the hit for me from the Ace of Pentacles or the uh, the thing that kind of gives me a shiver is when I see that path. I feel like it's directly addressing me and saying, "Okay, now you go on this road." The fifth power is to go. Yes. You know? So I really love this card, even as, you know, there's not that much going on on it, apparently, but there's something really More than meets spooky. the eye. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that that pentacle that the hand is holding does look very much like a coin. Yeah. I was thinking about that, and I was like, well, there's also the gold, you know, as the end result of alchemy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. going on there. And then there's also, you know, so if you're just thinking about coins in terms of Money, mm -hmm. sure, money is financial security. And I was also wondering if, I don't know, there's something about the price of incarnation, you know, because incarnation, it's both the most wonderful and the most perilous thing of all. Yeah. And I was thinking also that, you know, just the way the the hand holds the pentacle, every hand in every ace in Waite Smith is radiant. You know, there's a little sort of halo around each hand. But because of the way the Ace of Pentacles is held so closely in the hand, it reminds me of the way that you could almost think that the Ace, it's, that the Pentacle itself is glowing. And, you know, people mistake the glow of money for something mm. sacred, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something about the um, materialism as a you know, as a way of idolizing that which sustains life, but being lost in the thing itself rather than the purpose, which is to sustain life. Yeah, to sustain life and also human dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sometimes in order to have freedom, you have to have a certain amount of money, mm -hmm. financial security. Exactly. Yeah, the, in the hierarchy of needs, you know, the body comes first. Yeah, and also I I don't think we even mentioned that that their gateway thing is uh, you know a birth birth canal <laughs> birth <yeah>. canal <laughs> yeah yeah no gateways often are that's you know right. probably one reason why Malkut is the gate right 
Right, exactly. It's also, you know, what's also, you know, I never thought about this before, but if you look at the grass before the gateway, I mean, the whole thing has this air of cultivation, right? Because you don't get a doorway like that without, you know, human intervention, and you don't get cut grass like that without human intervention. So everything on this side of the gate is altered by the hand of man, and everything Mm. outside of it is wild, you know? Interesting. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. Should we go on to Thoth? <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> There's a lot going on in There is so much in, in that this card. card. He, he wrote, he like, wrote pages. pages on this card. He yeah. did. He went bananas. Of course, the first, like, page of it is something like how terrible all the other occultists are. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought that was hilarious, actually. <laughs> he must have ate something kind of off that morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite like, uh, what does he say about the grotesque barber Aliette, by which he means Atea, and the yeah. obscurely perverse worth. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody ate Yeah, he Wheaties. goes on a little rant there. But he has a lot of interesting things to say past that. He does, once you get into the actual breakdown of the card. One of the most interesting things in there, out of many interesting things, was that little footnote where he again, once again, mentions uh, Rabelais, Gargantua, and Pantagruel. That is where a lot of the ideas of Thelema originated because, you know, it was the story of the Abbey of the Thelemites. Mm. And that's an interesting place to begin with. It's it's like kind of like a monastery where everyone lived according to their free will and pleasure. And and they had a, a swimming pool, maid service, and no clocks. That's really funny. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's very satirical. <laughs> I've not read the whole thing. It's very long. But um, the prologue, says, most noble boozers and you, my very esteemed and poxy friends, for you and you alone are my writings dedicated. I guess yes, the maids yeah. weren't living according to their own will. <laughs> but it was, you know, kind of this satire about, yeah. that was very critical about the religious and educational systems of the times. Right. And their blind spots. Yeah. They, he talks a little bit about the family romance in here, uh, where the Earthy component, hey, final, the daughter is set upon the throne of the mother to awaken the eld of the all-father, which is just a way of saying, you know, the princess is awakened by her prince and ascends to become queen and he king. Yeah, he talks about that in terms, I think he says the name itself, meaning the tetragrammaton, as a continuously revolving sphere. Yeah, rebounding, whirling forth and crying aloud, which, you know, sounds like the spinning disc. Yeah, he talks a lot, too, about, you know, Earth not being the passive, dead, flat, evil element, but instead of the black, it should be more appropriately be the green of the resurrection of Osiris. Yeah, this this card, he does talk quite a bit about what kind of green it should be, too. Yeah, well, Osiris often was portrayed with green skin, and I think that's the type of green he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He says it should be a new green of spring, right? Not the original vegetable green of Isis. I think it looks like money. <laughs> it does. It looks like the little engraved little scrolls and stuff on the dollar bills. Doesn't it? You know, it really, it really looks, does. It really looks like you could hand this to someone as, you know, as legal tender. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so much just 
encoded in this thing. Um, it, it's meant to be a glyph of Earth in a way, uh, but also it says of the sun. Of the well, sun. Well, he talks about you know. I think he called. He mentions Liber Resh, the practice yeah. of the fourfold adoration of the sun, mm-hmm. and how this card is about the relationship between soul and Terra and how they are constant companions in a universe of pure joy. (laughs) And it it really, it speaks to his idea of incarnation as being, he he moved beyond his original Buddhist training of life as suffering into this idea of life as joy. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about earth and sun that I was thinking about. So we were talking about the fool and the universe and Mm -hmm. how that's encoded into this card. The number of the fool's Hebrew letter Aleph is one. The number of the universe Hebrew letter Tau is 400. What's Mm -hmm. the halfway point? 200, Resh, the sun. Oh, yeah. Now, one thing I haven't looked at as much is sort of the beyond the wings, just the background of the card. It's just this abstract sort of waves of glowing emerald green and gold, you know, kind of like it's glittering. I think to me it's supposed to indicate the idea of motion. Yeah, I can see that because it has those sort of lines of momentum. Yeah, again, so that give the idea of a disc as a whirling uh, and continuous motion, uh, a cycle, um, rather than something static. Right. So shall we look at the thing in the middle, uh, sigillum, the, uh, right there yeah. in the middle? That's oh, fascinating. <laughs> There's all sorts of stuff in there, including the mark of the beast, his yeah. personal signature, as should be on the ace of discs. Uh, we got to deal with it sometime. <laughs> I guess now's <laughs> the time. <laughs> so I guess going outward inward it's um, not just a phallic symbol it's an actual phallus <laughs> so so within the circle the sort of outer ring is just a circle and then the inner ring is actually a decagon and around that yellow band are the words in capital letters in greek to megatherion which means the great beast so his magical his motto, magical motto. and most yeah, advanced yeah. magical motto. <laughs> what were some of his like less advanced magical mottos? Well, he he started with Perturabo. That's I'll endure it to the end. And yeah. he ended with to Megatherion. And you know what? Um and there this was is, many in between that. I remember reading in that biography of him, I think it was actually called Pedro Rabo, and his mom, who was a piece of work, his <laughs> mom was, you know, repressive, highly religious, um, you know, maniac, uh, call, would call him the beast, right? She would call him the beast because of his behavior. And I guess at some point, he went from, you know, rebelling against that to empowering himself from it, mm-hmm. right? So he See where decided- that got her, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, you want to call me a beast? Okay, then. <laughs> I am the beast. And so he developed this fascination with finding his personal power in the attributes and lore of the beast, I guess. So the other thing about Tomega Therion is that it uh, enumerates in Greek to 666, right? This is isopsophy, which is sort of the Greek version of gematria. 
where the letters are assigned different numbers. So the interesting thing about Tomega Therion is that he breaks it down, and I couldn't even quite follow it, but he breaks it down to adding up to 666 and then interprets the quote-unquote vertical line above as a 1 to make it 667. And then he says that's equal to the number of the Scarlet Woman, by which he means uh, Hey Kokine Gune, which means the Scarlet Woman, <laughs> which if you add up the numbers for those adds up to 667. Yeah, and then he calls the one a phallus in the Scarlet Woman or something. <laughs> <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. So yeah, so anyway, so now you know all about what I it says. I always want to make a t-shirt with, with um, his face on it and the, the 666 saying, just call me little sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd want to use like his goofiest face, right? <laughs> right, right. That would be awesome. Because I think when he was on, he was on trial for for something in his life at one point, and um, mm-hmm. you know the judge was like, well, you know, why do you call yourself six six six? And he's like, well, that's just a number of the sun. You can call me Little Sunshine. <laughs> so ten ten sort of facets within that band there, which emanate from the ten points created by two overlapping pentagons, a five and a five there, uh, and then within that. The heptagram, the Babylon star, seven-point star. Yeah, there's so much numerology in this card. Oh, it's almost mind-boggling. There's yeah, the there's the six 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 solar connection. There's the the fivefold pentagrams and mm-hmm. what they symbolize. There's the the ten spokes of the wheel. There's the there's the twelve letters. You know this that which is another solar thing. I would think. Yeah, there's just so much yeah. going on in there. There's the sevens. Oh, it Babylon. just, yeah, which he does in several cards. He's trying to sort of encapsulate the whole mystical ethos of Thelema in there. <laughs> yeah, which shows how important he thought this card was. You know, I, I would love to read the correspondence between him and Lady Frida about it and how hard it was for her. There's the six wings, too. The six wings, right? Six being a Tiferet solar reference. Yeah, so, but right in the center of the Star of Babylon, there's those three overlapping circles, um, which have the 666 in them, and then the one above, I forgot to mention. And then the, the top circle, the one with the one in it, has a crescent moon sort of holding. So solar and just a little lunar as well. Well, it's just in the Mark of the Beast, that phallic symbol in the the middle which it it either looks like a sun symbol within lunar crescents or like you're looking at a penis from the top down however exactly. you choose to look at it but again it's a solar lunar conjunction you know the the beast in babylon yeah. conjoined and that symbol see how there's an oval that is um vertical and an oval that's horizontal yeah, um, I, I do see that. the disc itself. So the sort of... there's a vertical kind of shape that's oval in shape. Yeah, what's, what is it about that? I think that was um, referred to as the Lingo Mignoni again. So again, uh, you get yeah. the same kind of sun-moon thing going on. This card is so interesting on so many levels. I mean, first of all, you know, when you first see it, it's just kind of beautiful. And then you kind of go into it a little bit and it seems sort of erotic and disturbing. <laughs> And then, you know, and then you go further into it and there's just all these layers of number and symbol. It's and I just... love the um, the way that oval looks like tree rings. 
mm-hmm. and the way the there's those pine cone things that are part of the wings. Yeah. So it's almost like the seed and the and the the wood, the end product in the beginning, kind of. Oh yeah, that's true. I never thought about it that way. So on to Tabula Mundi. Beautiful, glowing green ace of discs with spooky crocodile eyes underneath. (laughs) It's probably going to be a bit of a long explanation just because for me personally, this card is very important as well as I think this card is just very important in the Thoth system itself. You know, just as in the Aeon card, Crowley tried to encapsulate the doctrine of Thelema, I think Equally so in this card, but on a different level. Mm-hmm. And as well as that, even more than that, so there's the thing about your signature being on this card that sets it apart, and I, right. I did do that. But uh, more than that, I just really resonate with, and as we go through what's in the card, maybe you'll see why, but from a very young age, I identified with the god Horus, even before I knew anything about anything i didn't know anything about crowley anything as a child so anyway since there's just so much in this card what i guess i'll do is i'll start at the top of the card and just describe what's in it and what it means and there'll be a lot there Um, absolutely there'll be enough there to go with the start and then maybe (laughs) you'll see if you the first thing that jumps out at, at the very top of that card is that grid of numbers that's the magic square of the sun For anyone that doesn't know much about the magic squares, um, every planet has one of these magic squares. They are usually based, well, they are always based on the number of the planet as corresponding to its sephira. So in this case, the number of the sun's sephira, Tiferet, is six. This magic square is a six by six grid. And if you multiply six by six, you get 36 The numbers 1 through 36, if you add them up, Mm -hmm. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, etc., you get 666. If you look at this magic square, every row, every column, and every diagonal adds up to to 111. And in each case, there's six of them. So again, you get 666. Wow. Oh, that's mind-blowing. So this is what you would call, I guess, a standard magic square. I mean, you might find that in... You yeah, know, other you'll magical find it texts. In, yeah, in lots of uh, magic texts. You'll see it in, um, you know, the big brick there, uh, Agrippa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll see it. You'll, you'll see it in. You'll see it in lots of magical texts. They're often used to derive sigils and seals of the planets by spelling out the names of the spirit corresponding each letter to a number, and then mm-hmm. connecting the dots, so to speak, to draw the sigil. Yes. This particular one is of the sun, and its number is 666. And as many people know, 666 is often considered the mark of the beast, you know, the the devil, but also the sun. So that comes from, in Revelations, there's um, a verse where John lays out a statement that he says, Here is wisdom. Let him that, that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is a number of man, and his number is 666. So there's a lot of people then that took 666 to be an evil number. But it's a num- It's not an evil number. It's a number of the sun. The All the names of the sun, like the spiritual intelligence of the sun or the spirits of the sun in Gematria either add up to 666 or 111. And 111 is a really interesting number. That's what all the rows and columns add up mm-hmm. to. 
I thought it's fun, kind of funny because I recently reread Lord of the Rings and at the very beginning, eleven <laughs> one, it's, yeah. it's Bilbo's 111th birthday. It's the abracadabra. It's a number of magic and there's a whole lot to say there, but probably not for here. Okay. So anyway, all these numbers of the sun are 6, 36, 111, and 666. And the 36 is interesting because it's the 360 degrees of the circle. It's the 36 decans of the sun's solar journey, Mm -hmm. 36 star constellations with the sun as their king. So there's all sorts of reasons why this, these numbers are associated with the sun. So that's not to mention that, that just numbers, mathematics and numbers in general can be thought of as a solar thing as well. Yeah, I can see that, you know, through Apollo and music. Cool. So the sun is, as we've already talked about in the last two cards, the sun is really an important part of this card because of the sun's importance in the doctrine of Thelema. So the sun, which incidentally is 93 million miles away from Earth, um, it's the sun as God, it's the sun as the self, it's the self as God. That's Mm -hmm. part of the whole story that's going on here. We have the main God of the age of Aquarius that we're in. This is the crowned and conquering child, Horus, the god Horus. And he's a sun god. So all that to say that there's a, there's a lot of solar influence in this card. And we've talked about it in the last two cards a little bit. But that's why there's this magic square of the sun here. Because what I tried to do in this card, as well as in every card of the deck, is to show a different way of showing what's shown in the Thoth version of the card. Completely different, but saying mm-hmm. the same thing. What we have in the card that's behind that distorted... Um, magic square magic square of the sun is this whirling disc and it's in two colors it's in it's got one whirling in one direction and one whirling in the other direction one in the color of the sun and one in the color of the earth and again that's bringing to mind how Crowley associated this card with Lieber Resch and the practice of saluting the sun the four adorations at four times of day it's absolutely hypnotic. <laughs> it almost yeah. looks like a hot air balloon, actually, which I think is cool. <laughs> so the other thing about the Lema and the sun and the number 666 that's relevant is that 666 was actually the catalog number of the Spelly of Revealing when Crowley and his wife Rose discovered it in the museum through her medium abilities being contacted by the god Horus. So right. Maybe that could we could refer people back to the episode on the Aeon card for a little bit more about that. But that right. number was very significant, and it was actually the number of the stele. It and was like a flashing neon sign saying, look here. <laughs> yeah, look here, and this is Horus. This is the sun god. And the interesting thing about the stele, we were talking about this card in terms of the the four powers of the Sphinx and then the fifth power to go. Mm -hmm. So Earth being the fourth power and then the fifth power also being implicit as the next step. So there's to keep silent and then to take action or to go. And what's interesting about the stele is the very last line on the reverse of the stele, what it says translated is to go forth by day, which is the meaning of the word Hru, which Mm -hmm. is another name for Heru or Heru Raha or Horus, to go forth by day in order to do everything that pleased him upon earth among the living. So just that one sentence, if you unpack it, it talks about to go, it talks about by day and through and the sun, 
and do what thou wilt, mm-hmm. and among the living as incarnation. It pretty it much talks does. about everything that this card is about. Wow. And the makes... stele itself, you know, shows Nuit, Hadit, and Horus, along with the, the priest Ankaf Nakansu. What's interesting is when you look at the Aeon card itself, it shows it shows Horpakrat or Harpakrates as the crowned and conquering child with Ra Horkuit in in the center of him. Right. But that's the opposite of the way it's shown elsewhere, uh, as it's often shown the other way as Harpakrates as being the silent center inside of Ra Horkuit. So right. what we're talking about here. One form of Horus or a form of Horus, Heru Raha, he has two forms, the active and the passive. The active is Rahorkuit, the passive is Harpocrates or Horparkrat. So, right. And another way of saying active and passive, which is a little bit simplistic, I like to think of it as, for those of you that do Liberesh, the solar adorations, there's a line in there about to stir me or to still me. And that stirring part, that active part, that fiery outgoing take action part or to go, that's Rahorkuit. And then to still me, that's the silent part. That's the observer. So there's the part that takes action and the part that watches and observes. And that's and the silent part. That's the part that's um, Hor Parkrat. Which so, is why he's depicted holding the finger in front of his mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he's the, the god of silence. Um shown with his forefinger or thumb sometimes against his lip, making the sign of silence, which is really interesting because that sign of silence is um, the sign for the probationer or initiate grade in the Golden Dawn. Harpocrates is also simultaneously, by Crowley himself, said that was the HGA or Holy Guardian Angel. And it's said that he contains everything within himself but unmanifested. Because this card, well, in my deck, has... Harpocrates as the babe in the egg of blue on the card. It's a it's a signpost that incarnation is all about performing the great work or discovering your will to go forth by day and do everything that pleases you on earth while you're among the living. Not to mention that this figure on your card is multivalent and represents you as the babe in the egg of blue as well. Yeah, it does. As I said earlier, I've always identified with Horus before I knew anything about Egyptology Crowley, the Lema, it was just like, as a child, I claimed Horus or he claimed me. <laughs> so it's kind of, I always knew that this was for me, simply because of that. The other thing that's really interesting about Hor Pakra is that you have to remember that the whole Thelemic religion is built upon Crowley's reception of the Book of the Law. And at the very beginning of the Book of the Law, Awaz, the narrator reveals himself or calls himself to be the minister of Hor Parakrat. Mm-hmm. So he's the, the mouthpiece for the holy guardian angel, the mouthpiece for this god of silence, or his words are considered the speech in the silence. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's really important. And Crowley himself associates him, he speaks a lot about Hor Parakrat in relation to the fool card, there's a section in Book of Thoth on page 120 that everyone should read, and it's about silence. And there's another section about Horpar Krat and the crocodile that starts mm-hmm. on page 59 that associates Harpocrates with Hey Final is this card. 
So there's a lot there just for people to read. He writes two marvelous essays in those two places that we can't really go over in fullness here, but they're well worth reading and they were the inspiration for this card. So then in the card, we also have the, um, as we spoke of earlier, we spoke about the triangle in the circle as the magical weapons of Malkut. In this case, the circle is the, you know, there's the whirling disc itself. There's the other circular forms behind mm -hmm. the figure. And there's the triangle, which is also the symbol of Earth because right. it has the uh, horizontal bar through it. Right. And on all of your aces, you can see the uh, element glyph. Uh, yep. clearly marked out. So then we've got the babe in the egg of blue, Harpocrates um, in the center. What can we say about him? So there's the egg, that's the egg of spirit, the Akashic egg. It's also the body of, of Nuit, that this figure with his finger, forefinger against his, his lip, um, mm -hmm. making the sign of silence. And he's sitting on a lotus that's floating upon the Nile. So you have the lotus beneath. What about the flower above, just beneath the magic square? Yeah, it's another lotus. It's another lotus. Okay. Yep. Good. Yep. It's, mm -hmm. it's so the the magic square of the sun is being birthed out of the lotus just as he is uh, below, mm -hmm. kind of like an as above so below kind of kind of thing. Yeah. You know the so we've got the egg, the egg of blue, which is the you know the body of Nui, the the egg, the akashic egg of spirit. Again, the fifth power, the spirit above matter. All that mm -hmm. is kind of part of this symbolism. We've got the the waves beneath those green waves. They are mm -hmm. both the simultaneously they're the hills of Malkut, but they are also the waves of the Nile that the egg floats upon. Right, and so they're the that, same hills that you can or waves that you can see in the Princess of Discs as well. Although yep. we don't have the crocodile eyes on that one. <laughs> yep, because here the, they also do double duty as the Nile. Crowley calls dawn breaking on the Nile as a form of awakening. Mm -hmm. And he calls the Nile as the fertilizer of the egg of the lotus. So the Nile is like the male principle and the egg being the, the female principle. So in the, in the Nile there, we've got those spooky crocodile eyes. And uh, that's the, the god Sobek or Sebek mm -hmm. or Crowley also calls him, interestingly, Mako, son of Set, which mm -hmm. I couldn't find much about. But Sobek is a crocodile god known as the Devourer that mm -hmm. follows Harpocrates, is always associated with Harpocrates. It's really interesting because just like we talked about the vulture in another episode being um, parthenogenic, genetic, yeah. Yeah. parthogenesis, where you can fertilize yourself. Yep. The crocodile yeah. was kind of mysteriously like that, uh, an entity that was had a mystery around how it procreated. The name itself, Sobek or Sebek, in Egyptian, there's two theories on what it meant. And one is to impregnate and the other is to unite. Because there was a, another story about Sobek or Sebek around Osir the Osiris myth. And one says that he, he, that he helped put the, together the pieces of Osiris after they were <laughs> all dismembered. And mm -hmm. there's another theory that says he ate a certain crucial part. <clears throat> <laughs> um, Which Isis uh, would forever go looking for. <laughs> and then there's another story that Horus took the form of a crocodile and, and helped his mother gather the pieces of Osiris right. so that she could put them back together. So there's all those kind of tie-ins. Um, Sobek was always associated in one way or another with Horus. Mm -hmm. And Crowley says something kind of tantalizing where he says that Sobek 
follows and torments Harpocrates, which was kind of interesting. It kind of reminded me of this like familiar relationship between the Magus and the ape on that card. Yeah. You know, yeah. how the ape follows him and, and twists his words. Well, in the same way, Sobek was said to follow Harpocrates or, or Horpocrat. Right. And the fool as well, you know, in both your fool and the Thoth fool, there, there's Sobek. And, yeah. You know, yeah, that's why kind that of the section, little dog, you know, <laughs> that's why that section on, um, on Sobek is, is in the section mm-hmm. on the fool. But it makes sense because the fool and the aces are kind of equated with each other. Exactly. You know, I never realized until just now I was looking at the letters on your on the yellow circle and realizing that they read Babylon. <laughs> I never yes, realized that before. <laughs> yep, they do. Yeah, in Hebrew, right to left. Again, about Sobek as the devourer, there's always this association between gods of destruction and creation as it being kind of the same thing. So just as Sobek was called the devourer, he was also associated with fertility. And Crowley talks a lot about the fool in relation with the crocodile and the story about the maximum innocence developing into the maximum fertility and about the idea of silence or stillness and its and, or innocence and its relationship to the will. He talks about Shiva as the creator and the destroyer and Sobek in this in these terms as well and the devil uh, or Pan as being both the all begetter and the all generator. And all these cards are all tied into this card, the fool, the devil. What Crowley said is he said kind of cryptically, but it makes sense to me. Silence is not the answer to the Sphinx's riddle. It is that which is created by the answer. Oh, that's interesting. So it's that that perfect stillness of the observer, you know, the watcher. Yeah. That, that comes at some point. <laughs> well, you know, that makes me think of, you know, the what's supposed to take place when one solves a koan, right? Because yeah, the exactly. answer that you give is not the answer, right? Yes. It's the answer's inside you. Exactly. It's pointing to something like that. Right. It's a signifier of sorts. Yep. Yeah. I don't think I mentioned yet, even though you, you hinted it. So the um the babe in the egg of blue figure, that is actually my personal signature, as mm-hmm. well as being the babe in the egg of the blue Harpocrates Horpocrat. That's my personal signature in the sense of my astrology chart, my rising degree, the Sabian symbol is a child is born of an eggshell. I put the, that in there not only because it was perfect for the card, but as a kind of little personal touch. For, it's your maker's to, mark. To, yeah, to stand in, in lieu of a signature. Yeah, he's wearing he's wearing that crown with the 418 on it. And Crowley talks a lot about the number 418 all over the place in relation to many cards, including the ace. But it's a number of the great work. So it's yet another way of saying the great work. Right. The purpose of incarnating in life is to fulfill, to discover your will and go forth by day among the living. Do I remember right that you did 418 copies of the Babylon edition of the deck? Or was it a no, different edition? No, that was 156 copies for the number <laughs> of Babylon. But 418 I did, um, that was the very first 78 card tabula mundi that was in black and white that's right that's it that was an edition of 418 oh god imagine if you had had to do 418 babylons (laughs) oh goodness no it was hard enough doing the 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 black and white 
yeah. deck because I, I hand numbered them all in Roman numerals. Oh my and God. some of those numbers getting up by 418 are pretty <laughs> goddamn long. They're pretty gnarly. So I had to figure out the Roman numeral for everyone and write it on there without making a mistake. And some of them got pretty long and make sure it was centered on the card. And that was a royal pain. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and when I, when I drew this card, physically drew the drawing, it was on my solar return. So <laughs> wow, wow! Brings in the sun and made it again, made it more personal. That's really cool. So when you did the black and white drawing, you're talking about yeah, the colorization. did the original mm-hmm. drawing of the card. Oh well, one thing the babe in the egg of blue, I should mention besides being a term for Harpocrates or Harpocrat, it comes from the Book of the Law in chapter two, the chapter that is Hadith speaking, and in verse forty nine. He says, "There is a fi- there, this is of the four, there is a fifth who is invisible, and therein am I as a babe in the egg. So Hadith is associated as well with this babe in the egg of blue. And, and you may remember that Hadith is the one who goes. And who has a presence on the Eon card as well. So then if we look at the card, as you mentioned, there's, there's the, um, the name of Babylon in the circle above the, the flying egg mm-hmm. in Hebrew letters. And... In the triangle below, you'll see these sevens. So there's 77 plus 7 plus 7 divided by 7 plus 77, which equals 156. So Mm -hmm. just like in Crowley's card, he had the beast in Babylon as 666 and 156. These two numbers are incorporated here, which is another way of saying the sun and moon conjoined. Just like here, we have the solar whirling emblem of the sun and earth. And then that yellow circle does look awfully lunar, kind of all there. If we look at this one tiny thing that probably most people would miss and isn't mentioned anywhere else, but look at the very bottom, bottom. I was going to ask you, it looks like an on button. (laughs) Do you see that little, yeah, it's a circle with a vertical line through it. Yeah. It does look like an on button, which is perfect <laughs> for it to go, isn't it? Yeah. But that wasn't really what it was. It was um it's it's a one and a zero. The one and the zero, there's so many things that we could say about that, the whole binary thing. It could be disturb me and still me, the male principle and the female principle. It could be Harpocrates or Horpocrat versus Ra Horku as the two halves, passive and active, of Heru Raha. It could be a one and a zero as the one and the ten and mm-hmm. the journey from the ace to Malkut. It could be Malkut as the ten. It could be a lingo mignoni. It could be the rest stations of noon and midnight, which correspond to the sun and moon as the in a astrology chart. The top is Capricorn and the bottom is Cancer. It could be the the solstices of the year, which one is the peak of the sun and one is the nadir of the sun, the max light and the lowest light, but it is all those things in one. It's interesting to think about the zero and one as also being just, you know, a way of saying this is the this is the basis of the universe. I mean, if you think about our virtual world, it all just comes down to zero and one. Yep. And how in everything that is created simultaneously is created its opposite. So I mean, there's probably more I could blab about this card, but I don't want to <laughs> hog the whole show talking about this one card. But I will say something about, I mentioned in Libra Monday 
chapter about this card, my favorite quote of the Tao Te Ching. I used to keep this on my desk at work, probably because I'm an introvert. And it <laughs> says, um, those who know do not talk. Those who talk do not know. So right. with that, I'll probably stop talking about this card. <laughs> it doesn't favorite. have anything to say about what happens afterwards when they go, though. Right. <laughs> you should have something about going in there and then hang it in your bathroom. <laughs> Well, I already have in my bathroom, I have that plastic paddle. It's like an oar for rowing a boat, and it sh- says Shit Creek Approved on it. I never that's saw my, that. That's my, that's my to-go thing in the bathroom. Oh, gosh, that's really cool. I've never noticed that. <laughs> so I, I think people should just know that it's a good idea. Um, now's a good time, if you want to, to take out all your other aces and compare it to Mel's Ace of Discs, because that's a very rewarding activity, and also to compare it to the Princess of Discs because there's lots and lots of connections there that you'll instantly make by doing that. Right. So uh, do you do you often get the Ace of Discs? I do, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm always happy to see it because for me, you know, just like one of the traditional meanings of the card is perfect contentment. And also because I really identify with it, I've never gotten this card and seen it as a bad thing. Although I know there are some people which it puzzles me that, see negative things in this card but I'm not one of them the only thing I could say about this card is if you see the death inherent in life and the you know the perils of incarnation aspect of life you know that's kind of maybe that's another meaning of Sobek chasing Hippocrates but other than that I always see it as a positive and I do get it a lot I think that the aces in general it's often hard to see them as negatives you know because they represent opportunities and you miss an opportunity you miss an opportunity you know it's yep. it's not necessarily the end of the world it's just something that didn't happen and with this one in particular i do occasionally i can imagine a negative i have one sort of meaning on my list here which reminded me of that which was like just a day i had it in reversal and i spent the entire day just dealing with house, you know, just dealing with the material world. As oh, if, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, as if I were drag. blinded to anything beyond the material. The uh, other things that I've gotten it for, and I get it like a reasonable amount, I've gotten it to indicate real opportunities, real, um, real beginnings of work. Like the very first time I heard from Barbara Moore after pitching my book to her, that was a Ace of Disc day. So that that was how that kind of grew oh. into that project. The day I filed my trademark registration for Arcana cases, that was an ace of disc day. Let's that see. makes sense. Uh, days I've deposited a check at the bank. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Cha-ching. <laughs> exactly. So very literal. And then there was one that was one reversal one that I thought was hilarious, which was the very first day last year I went on this trip to Singapore. And when I got there, I got this card upside down. And I thought it was really funny because it was like my clock and my world were upside down. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it was completely mixed up day for night. And so I didn't know where or when I was. So yeah, and I, I always like seeing it no matter what. It gives me a feeling of possibility, you know, and magic every time I see it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about it. I can't quite explain it, but there is something about it that really seems to carry the weight of its own potential, you know? Definitely. Yeah. 
it definitely has a lot of potential to to be the beginning of something really important that actually occurs in your life. I like this ace best of all, of all of them. Yeah, and I think you do too. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, it's my yeah. favorite. I'm going Oh to yeah, one thing I noticed yeah. when mm-hmm. I was um, reading up on um, a little bit about Horace earlier, in Libra 418, Crowley's visions of the Aethers, in the first Aether, he sees Horace as a child covered in lilies and roses. I thought no that kidding. was pretty cool. That, no kidding, really? what we really? were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's wild. I did not realize yeah. that. Does he, he, because he, I don't normally hear references to the lilies and roses from Crowley. Yeah, I know. Doesn't seem like there's one. (laughs) There's one. That's super interesting. One more thing that I thought of is when we were talking about that sign of silence. So when I do the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, I end it with the sign of silence, as as Mm -hmm. do many. I don't know, not maybe not everybody, but. Lon does, doesn't he? I believe he does. He does, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so by making the sign of silence at the end, you're said to be assuming the god form of Harpocrates. And it's interesting because in Liber Aleph, Crowley's, I guess, instruction manual to his magical son, he says, neglect not the assumption of the form of Horpocrat. So it's very important right. to remember to come into yourself and be the observer and assume that god form. All right. Are we going to try and wrap this up? I feel like, you know, wrapping it up is trying to make a completely accurate scale model of the earth, you know, down to every last right. detail. <laughs> well, we can we can either wrap it up and or try the best we can without it taking another hour or we can keep silent and say, you know what? <laughs> it's wrapped. Oh gosh. I think we should try and do the best we can. Names and concepts. Okay, let us begin to sum it up. Uh, We are talking about the root of the powers of the earth, the throne of the rose of the palace of earth. Mm -hmm. When you said rose of the palace of earth, Mm -hmm. there's that whole thing about roses being associated with silence. Yeah. Under the sub rosa, under the rose. Oh, sub rosa. Yeah. Yeah. Rose, rose as a symbol of what's spoken of must not be, must not leave this room or whatever. So there's, a, there's the rose as a symbol of silence is real, which is really cool as the princess of discs with her power to keep silent. Yeah. And I think of also the myth of, of earth, the myth of the sleeping beauty within her briars, you know, her wall of briars and thorns sleeping and sleeping. Yeah. It's evocative. It is, uh, centered around the signs of Aries, Taurus. It's one of the four aces revolving in the North Pole and centered uh, quadrant-wise around Aries, Taurus, Gemini. Uh, The signs of spring in the Northern Hemisphere and fall in the Southern. It is associated with, we can think of it as being associated with the universe card and the quest in the universe or world card, the search for the divine, uniting the physical with the spiritual. Right. Or the uh, fool's journey as the knight errant who marries the king's daughter and becomes the king. The journey from the upside down pentagram of the devil, the matter over spirit to the uh, interlocking hexagram of as above, so below of the hermit. In his yeah, we talked about this card in relation sh- 
in relation to the fool, in relation to the universe, in relation to the hermit as the Yoda first letter of the divine name, in relation to the devil as the all creator and all devourer. I mean, it's got so many connections. In relation to the princess, in relationship to the ten. We talked about the power to keep silent. And to go. <laughs> uh, we talked about Hey Final and location in Malkut, Keter in Asiya, but also Keter in Malkut and Malkut in Keter. The story of the daughter becoming the queen and mother. Yeah, or the story of Hey Final and the Vav, which can also be equated to the story of the solar twins, Heru Raha's two aspects. They say that hey final corresponds to Horpakrat and the Vav corresponds to Rahorkuit. Right. And uh, we talked about what pentacles really are. Pentacles are pentacles or talismans and the pentacle of Ezekiel. And we talked about the four powers of the Sphinx, the fourth one being the power to keep silent which leads to the unification of them all, the fifth power to go. Uh, we talked about the way the four-petaled ace of coins in Marseille turned into the five-pointed pentagram. And how it looks like a quartered cross of Malkut. And how the ace of discs or pentacles is always just a little bit different from the others. <laughs> and we talked about the aces as spirit, but this ace as being both spirit and body, or spirit within matter. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the maker's mark on various ace of discs, including yours. We talked about the rose and the lily at great length, the dualities that they represent, and their appearance in the Song of Solomon. And we, we talk talked about pentacles or pentacles as being magical items as mm -hmm. opposed to mere coins. And we talked about discs as being whirling emblems, whether they're solar or star-like, as opposed to flat objects. Uh, we talked about the ace of diamonds. Um, and, and the uh, ace of... Um, yeah, and the ace of clubs, I think. Clubs, yeah. Uh, and the, how the ace of diamonds is sometimes called the pig's eye. We talked a lot about numbers. The magic so much square about the numbers. Sun, <laughs> the number 666, the number 156, the number 418, the number 7, the number 10, the number 12, the number 22, and 111. Number 4, probably. <laughs> and 1 and 10. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we talked about Tomega. We talked about Tomega Therion, uh, the great beast, and also He Kokine Gune, the red woman, and how they enumerate to 666 and 667 on Alistair Crowley's card. And we talked about Soul and Terra of Liberesh as the constant companions in a universe of pure joy. We talked about we the new green of spring in the Crowley card. Um, Following and we talked about the green skin of Osiris yep. and his resurrection and um, the crocodile Sobek in relation to that story. There's also another connection in the universe card is that it's sometimes known as the card of the missing card of prudence, which, you know, you have fortitude, temperance, justice, and prudence. And, um, 
Ah, Prudence yeah. is also the anima mundi and the and the, the Sophia, the, world. Yeah. the soul of the world, and her weapons are the coin and mirror. Her totems are the coin and mirror. Oh, very so, good. Yeah. So again, that prudence being the concept of living rightly in the world. Let's see. We talked about many geometric shapes: uh, decagons, pentagons, heptagrams, pen. Uh, uh, triangles, circles, <laughs> all of and them. And we, we talked about the uh, the circle with the vertical line through it as the cosmic on button and <laughs> many, many other things. That's right. We talked about uh, themes of birth and seeds, in, uh, seeds and fruit and clocks and time. We talked about gates and paths. Uh, we talked about mountains as well. And, uh, and gardens, cultivated gardens within and the wild without. We talked about Rabelais' Pantagruel and the uh, eat, drink, and be merry lifestyle. Oh, Mel, we talked about everything and nothing. <laughs> yes, that's what this card's all about, everything and nothing. I guess we can leave it at that. I like that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, so anyway... Um, Speaking of clocks, ours has run out. But thank you for staying with us for this jumbo episode on the Ace of Discs. And we will be back with some change, the Lord of Change and the Two of Pentacles or Discs. See you then. And that's our show for today. You can find us, as always, at our online home, www.patreon.com slash fortuneswheelhouse. But there are also a number of other places you can find me and Mel on the internet. All of Mel's books and decks can be found at www.tarocart.com. So that's your first stop if you want to find anything related to the Rosetta Tarot or the Tabula Mundi Tarot. That's also where you'll find the adorable new pocket-sized decks as well as signed and matted prints of her artwork. As for me, my book... Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers, is coming out from Llewellyn and is available for pre-order online at Amazon Book Depository and more. You can learn more about that at my website, www.tsusanchang.com. I also have a shop on Etsy where I sell the one and only trademarked Arcana case in lavish silks, brocades, and esoteric prints, as well as my Zodiac perfumes. Perfumes for the next month's sun signs are always on sale at the year's lowest price. All of that is at www.etsy.com slash tarotista. And if you'd like your very own Fortune's Wheelhouse t-shirt or tote bag or mug, we have those too. You can find them at our Redbubble shop. The address for that is redbubble.com slash people slash wheelhouse93 slash shop. Go on, get yourself something. You know you deserve it. Happy shopping to all you heroes of the astral plane. We so appreciate your support. Mm -hmm.